So I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to continue this um, very interesting topic of um, what I call the Dharma of Difficult People, part two. <laughs> it's, it's continuous with what we were talking about just before, about sometimes the, the mind patterns are, are just insistent, but you're actually not the only person who's a difficult person. <laughs> and I'll, I'll, um, in fact, I'll, I'll get into that just in a, in a moment, but um, maybe it's actually good just to begin uh, for everyone to just take a, a short reflection, um, maybe sort of following a little bit like where Catherine was going, and just reflect on who is a difficult person in your life. And it might be you. <laughs> and just bring to mind a few images of encounters or interactions just to bring the subject matter close to us. It might be something that happened in the last week. So what I'd like to what I'd like to do, um, maybe with that material fresh in our minds, is to first of all uh, review a little bit where we were last time, and I want to um, I want to talk about what I thought were the three main areas from last time, which which were first that we can take our encounters with difficult people as an opportunity to learn and grow spiritually, if you wish, <laughs> and secondly. Um, to look more closely at the actual experience. What is the actual experience of being with difficult people? And third, to suggest some practices for being with difficult people. So I want to review those three aspects uh, briefly. And then I want to add a few other dimensions of working with difficult people, some of which came up in the discussion that we had after the talk last time. And in that, I want to uh, bring in some uh, because it's... December 24th, I want to bring in some the teachings of Jesus. Because Jesus gave teachings, you could say that an important part of his teachings were how to be with difficult people. So that's what I'll, that's what I'll explore today. And then we'll have, we'll have some time to uh, talk together about our own explorations, hopefully, of the last week. So, so this, this, first, um, this first point is, is really crucial. It has to do with really um, shifting our mindset a little bit in relation to difficult people so that we can actually take our encounters with difficult people as invitations to practice. You remember the, um, I think the quotation I gave from Shanti Deva, Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. He says, Therefore, just like treasure appearing in my house, without any effort on my behalf to obtain it, I should be happy to have an enemy, for the enemy assists me in my conduct of awakening. Not the usual perspective, that we can actually be interested in our, our uh, working with difficult people. And, and in large part, the reason that I'm giving this talk has to do a lot, and the reason that it's uh, an interesting topic for me is because personally, and I'm sure this is true for all of you in many ways, but for myself, 
when I could shift perspective, I've learned so much personally from being with difficult people, um, whether they be people at work or often, of course, people difficult to me. Any, any relationship we have that we're going to learn from, the other, even if we have warmth and love a lot, the other person is going to sometimes appear as difficult, even occasionally demonic. <laughs> <laughs> So, so we can, we can, uh, we can see that, and, and also ways that we see even that ourselves can be difficult people. I remember uh, Gil Fronsdale has this, who teaches at Spirit Rock, has this wonderful line where he says, you know, if there was another person who followed us around, whispering in our ear what we tell ourselves, and did that all the time. We would think that that was the most obnoxious person in the world. <laughs> Can imagine that. So, um, so for myself, it's been so much learning, and and it's been, of course, difficult because difficult people are people who seem to take us into experiences of what anger and fear and sadness and being triggered and being out of control and so forth. That's why we call them difficult because they do so on a regular basis, you know. Um, so, so, to, so somehow to shift our practice so that we start to say, oh, a difficult person, time to practice, is, is I think what I'm encouraging us to do. It's really to shift intention and to, um, and to really uh, take, that, take that as an opportunity. And it, I think it has to do with something that's, that starts occurring Maybe not at the beginning of our practice, but maybe more at an intermediate or a, even in a more advanced state where we start to be very interested in times when we lose it. That we start to be, um, even have a certain fascination about our own suffering. That we start to take our own suffering as an invitation to practice. I think that's, it's a very, very crucial moment in practice. And I, again, it's not always, sometimes it can happen to some extent at the beginning. I know when I was first practicing, I had Joseph Goldstein as a teacher, and Joseph gave me a line which I, which I, which I loved, which was, if there's, suffer, if there's suffering, where's the attachment? That was a practice direction, right? And it, it, I wrote it down, and I just, you know, every time I suffered, oh, where's the attachment? You know, and it's something that, that you can do. And I did that early on, but I think that there's also a certain more intermediate or even more mature kind of practice where we start to be very interested in our own distress. And I think it's, it's, we can do that maybe because it's not happening so much or it's not happening all the time. And so we can really, um, so we, to take that, to take uh, moments of, of um, difficulty, distress, or particularly with difficult people, is um, is a shift in our practice. It's like there's a there's a Tibetan Buddhist slogan in the Lojong teachings, which says, "Transform all obstacles into the path of awakening." That's what this first point is about. That's to do that, and and everything shifts when we can when we can have that perspective on our practice. So then. The second uh, area I wanted to look into to review some of where we were last time is that um, what do we find when we actually bring mindfulness to our experience of difficult people? You know, first of all, again, we find 
that actually what's difficult is not really the external person, the other person. What's difficult is our own experience with the difficult person. In other, and that, that's a very important insight because it means that it gives us some basis for not so much blaming the other person for our difficulty. That's, that doesn't mean the other person is not significantly responsible. <laughs> I want to I make that point. It's like, it's like the phrase, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not after you. <laughs> right? Uh, <laughs> so, but, but we start to see that what's difficult about difficult people are our difficult emotions and thoughts. That's what makes them difficult, that it's... Um, it's our fear, our sadness, our, our anger, our confusion, our reactivity. And so we can begin to, we can begin to see that. We can also see that we typically, with difficult people, when we're in a reactive mode, we will actually blame them for our difficult experiences. We could call that a kind of projection. You know, that we will tend to project outward and say, this person is bad, you know, is, is really, um, well, we'll usually have quite a few different, ana- we have very subtle analysis. Let's, you know, and a large, a major preoccupation for many of us with difficult people is analyzing difficult people, <laughs> right? We have, we'll, we'll, we'll spend hours figuring out why difficult people are so messed up. <laughs> right? And it's, for many of us, it's a major part of our lives uh, to, to, to make those analyses. And so we start to see that when we're reactive towards difficult people, we will tend to blame them. We will tend to cause a dichotomy whereby we are good and they are... This isn't when we're most reactive. We are good. We are not responsible. They are bad. They are responsible for our difficult experience. So it's very useful to to see that more clearly. What actually happens when we begin to bring mindfulness to the experience of difficult people is that somehow difficult people trigger something in us. I talked last time about how it's almost like uh, our unconscious meshes with their unconscious and we create a wonderful um, dance of pain together, you might say. I mean, not so wonderful, but it's, it's a complicated dance of pain. Uh, that we that we get involved with, and there's some triggering that occurs that makes us somewhat automatic and reactive. Essentially, we're in pain of some kind. It's actually often at a level that we can't know or experience or acknowledge, and so we go off on automatic and do what we might call one of our many defense mechanisms. You know, one of our set of multiple defense mechanisms, which could include aggression, withdrawal, escape, blaming, you know, and so forth. Um, resentment and, and so forth. And we, when we're reactive like that, we don't feel our pain, but we engage in uh, reactive behavior in relation to the difficult person. We may also um, actually not see very clearly the difficult person. We may have certain longings or expectations about how we want the difficult person to act, even though it goes in the face of how the difficult person has acted for 20 years if it's someone close to us, we, it's because we want something, right? It's because we may have some deep longing. I may have some deep longing to connect with this person, and the person keeps on resisting me, 
and I keep on, you know, and it's a dance, like I grab, the other person pulls back. And we may do that with a family member for 20 years, right? And that, that family member may become a difficult person. So there, there often is some kind of uh, ignorance about the other person because we're blinded by our wanting. We're, we're blinded so we can't see very clearly. So then the question is to, to move to the third point. Well, how do we work with difficult people in that way? Or, you know, and th- these would be some, some first practices. How do we work with that kind of situation with difficult people? So first of all, I think we form the intention to learn. That's like, like, the, like the taking the opportunity of this to be practiced. So if we had to say, okay, I know I'm going to be with a difficult person um, later today or tomorrow or in the next period, what, how, how might we practice with a, that difficult person? First of all, we could form the intention to actually learn in the situation and have that intention be clear. Intention is so crucial to our practice. And it might be to set ourselves before we're with... It doesn't mean we're going to com- not completely forget and get lost with the person, but we set the intention, and over time, that intention can have a lot of, lot of power. We also start to study, when we're with difficult people, we start to study our own patterns really intensively. We become experts in our own reactivity, as if we weren't already experts, but we become more of an expert because difficult people are really inviting us to see those patterns, many of which we don't want to look at because they're kind of uncomfortable and yucky and they often are are, are the parts of ourselves that we don't feel very good about. But nonetheless, we take it when we're with difficult people that part of our intention is to study those reactive patterns. And I think this is the spirit of Shantideva saying, here we have a kind of a gift. We have someone who actually is bringing out um, our parts of ourselves that might not come if we just were with um, friendly, kind, nice people all the time. You know, I remember when I went to um, uh, when I went to teach and, um, quite a few years ago. I went to teach um, my first job. I taught at the University of Kentucky for about four years, and I had mostly been able to organize my life so that I, if there were people who were difficult for me, I just stopped spending time with them, generally. And I was able to control things to an extent. And then I wound up teaching in a um, department of the university where I was like on the bottom of the totem pole. And there were a lot of people who um, I never would have chosen to be with. Um, how charitably. <laughs> you know. And, and they had power over me also, you know. And they could do things which made my life very unpleasant. And they did. <laughs> and, you know, I think there were, I, I won't, I don't know if I'll go into the stories too much, but there was one person who seemed to be incredibly threatened by me. He was an older man who, who, until I came, he thought that he was the main teacher in the areas of religion and the areas of death and dying. And I had some background in, in both those areas. And he just, he just wanted to get rid of me. You know, and, and there was, a, there was a, um, it's a very hierarchical system. And any senior teacher could call for the review of any junior teacher at any time. 
And any, and any of those reviews could have had me fired. He did it three times in the first three years. Normally, I would have been reviewed once, right? And every, every time, my survival was at stake. And, and he wasn't the only one, actually. And I probably did some unskillful things, but I thought of myself as just innocent and good and being, having this massive aggression come at me, which probably had a fair amount of truth to it. Um, but I, I took it at the time. I said, um, I can learn something about how to work with aggression coming at me. And it, was, um, it wasn't easy, but that shift of um, intention made a huge difference. You know, and, and that's when I actually experimented giving gifts at those times. I gave gifts to some of the people who were difficult for me in that situation, and it shifted things. It didn't make it not so easy, but it, it, it made it more practice rather than just, woe is me, or this is a horrible situation. So we, we take those opportunities to really start to study closely the dynamics of what happens with difficult people. This means that we... Start, first of all, we start to just have an inventory of the patterns that occur. That's, I think, where we have to start. And it may be all we can do just to note, oh, when I'm with this person, I'm angry. We, we can use the noting and just begin to see all the different patterns. As we note it more clearly, if we can begin, and this, this takes a lot of practice, if we can begin to see those patterns um, so closely that we can start to see right in the moment when we start to get triggered. When we can do that, we're, we start to have a certain slowing down of the mind. So in the moment, we, and, and sometimes, I mean, for myself, I've sometimes gone into situations where I'd be with difficult people, and I said, all I'm going to do is kind of look out for that moment of triggering and see what that's like and try to study it and just try to see, basically, when I get lost. Because that's when we can start to do that we're starting to bring more consciousness to the unconscious and reactive patterns. So I could say, I'm going to be here with this person, and I'm going to sort of look for when I basically get lost. You know, in the example I was giving last time, it was when the person in a position of power over me wouldn't listen to me. I thought he would, I would speak, and the person would say something and indicate that he wasn't listening. And I would try to study in myself, okay, how do I start getting triggered so I just start basically writing off this person and judging the person? If when we can start to do that, then we can start to go in and actually feel in the moment the pain of the situation. Now, as we were talking last time in the discussion, this kind of work, I think, takes training. That we can really think of ourselves if we take on the task of making being with difficult people part of our practice, we should think of ourselves as in training. And we should be serious about the elements of our training. Because in a way, uh, what we can do is we can have places like here, like I could be, in a way, the difficult people coach. And I would say, okay, we'll, we'll study this, we'll look at this in ourselves, and then, all right, Go out. Don't try to find difficult people. They'll find you. <laughs> you know? And go out and, and um, do your best with the experience. And then we come back to the, as it were, the safe space. We could think of training as going back and forth between the safe space, the training space, and the real life space. And I think we have to look at our work with difficult people in that way. Because just not having the sense of training, it's too hard, I think. 
We need to come back to our sitting. We need to be able to talk with the sangha, the community. We need to work. Sometimes it's very useful to work with our, with our key patterns to work with a therapist or to work with a teacher to bring some, some light to those patterns so we can really say, okay, this is the pattern that I will tend to do with this person and to really be able to know what it is clearly so we can look out for it. That is something that's harder to do if we don't have that sense of training. You know? Training also means, I think, um, it means, you know, in the Buddhist sense, we think of training as a threefold training. We think of it as a training in ethics, meditation, and wisdom. That's the traditional threefold notion of training. So when we go into training with difficult people, we can think, I'm going into, I'm going into training, so when I'm with this difficult person, I will remember the ethical precepts. I will remember to work with the precept of not harming, to work with the precept of not taking with that which is not given, to work with the precept of speech and the guidelines of speech, which we explored a few weeks ago, this, the guidelines of working with speech that's truthful and helpful. These, this was my reconstruction of the Buddhist teachings. Truthful, helpful, kind, and appropriate or having clear intentions. So we go into that. We say, okay, I'm in training. I need to have my, my tools. I need to work with the, with the precepts. I need to work with the uh, training on the cushion, the meditation cushion. That a lot of the training that I actually have is teaching me how to work with difficult moments in my own experience that are not as difficult as with the difficult people. So I can see my time on the cushion as continuous with the difficult people. It's like, what do I do when I notice myself being triggered because of a knee pain? Okay? Not usually as difficult as the most difficult person, but the dynamics may be similar. Right? I have a knee pain. If I have unconscious not wanting to be with the pain, I may just go off into something. I may go off into fantasy at that point. And so for me, on the cushion, that training is to be able to see how I get triggered in small things. When I do that training, then I can bring the training into being with more difficult things. And so we can see our meditation practice as learning also about our reactivity learning about our reactivity, and learning how to be with what's painful rather than fleeing from what's painful. And we can also see the, our, our work as a training in the wisdom dimension by which we come to understand the dynamics by which difficult people become difficult people for us and the ways we get lost. We can see the way the mind works. We can start to understand that. We can hear teachings. We can also hear teachings which encourage us to work with difficult people. And that would be strengthening the wisdom dimension. Now I want to, um, I want to talk a little bit now about um, Jesus with, as it were, a bow to um, tomorrow and the holiday, even though his birthday was actually in April. <laughs> but I guess what's it, it's sometimes thought that it's sometimes thought that the holiday was switched so they would be, have a competitive edge against the pagans <laughs> and, the, and their holidays of light, right? <laughs> anyway, that's a, but, but we, can really, we can really see that um, in many ways uh, Jesus was giving teachings about difficult people. And I, I looked through, last night I looked through the Gospel of Matthew 
and just wanted to remind us of a few of those teachings and, and weave in also some similar teachings that come from a Buddhist perspective. So, first of all, um, we can see that there's a, that in the in the teaching of refusing the practice or refusing to follow the idea of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. This is Jesus' teaching. Uh, maybe I'll just read this and then comment on it. This is from uh, Matthew uh, 5. You have learned how it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, offer the wicked man no resistance. On the contrary, if anyone hits you on the right cheek, offer him the other as well. If a man takes you to law and would have your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone orders you to go one mile, go two miles with him. Give to anyone who asks, and if anyone wants to borrow, do not turn away. You have learned how it was said, you must love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And he goes on with that. And there, there are probably many homilies being given today or tomorrow that, that expand on that. But we could see the similarities and, and, and some of the intricacies of the teachings about working with difficult people. That we could see this as a way to be similar to the teaching of avoiding the way that we, as it were, pass on the pain. I talked about that last time. When we're reactive, our tendency with others, when we have pain, we will tend to cause others pain. That's the nature of reactivity. You know, when we're reactive, reactively angry, someone causes us pain, we tend to cause them pain. And I think that Jesus is giving the same teaching that we find in the, um, in the teachings of the Buddha, where the, where the Buddha says... Violence never ends with violence. Violence only ends with love. It's really, it's really that similar teaching. And I think it's, we could interpret the, the notion of not offering resistance in different ways when he says, you know, turn the other cheek. We could interpret that in a more inner way as being an uh, a invocation to study our reactivity. You know, and to study because it's really the problem maybe actually not so much what we do but what our inner state is. Are we reactive or are we responsive? And if we're reactive, then we will tend to pass on the pain in relation to others. And so we could see, well, let me, let me hold your, your questions maybe till, we, till I finish, if that's okay. And so we, we, we study our reactivity because we also know, in a little different example, Jesus wasn't always just turning the other cheek with difficult people, he also went to the temple and turned out the money changers, right? And so this, this relates to the, the point that we were making in the discussion last time where we talked about that story. Remember, we talked about the story of the cobra who wanted to um, turn over a new leaf, so to speak, mm-hmm. and, and came back to the teacher and, said, and was all totally battered and bruised and said, I've just laid down and people have stomped on me and hit me. And the guru says, uh, well, I told, I, didn't, I told you not to bite people, but I didn't say not to hiss. <laughs> and it really relates to the question of how sometimes with difficult people, the teaching is not just to let them do whatever they want to do with you. Right? That sometimes, but it's more a matter of studying our own reactivity and then perhaps acting in a way which is... Uh, important, you know, that it's, 
there's in the in the Buddhist teachings, in the, in the Mahayana tradition, in the Bodhi, their Bodhisattva teachings, which says that it is part of your Bodhisattva vow to stand up to destructive people, to stand up to they, you know, what might be translated as evil. You could say that Jesus, with the money changers, also did that. He, but the question is, have you? And in in the Bodhisattva practices, there are instructions on how to cleanse your heart, but it doesn't mean not to act in an effective way against those who are acting harmfully. That could be a confusion about this practice of being with difficult people. So Jesus also goes on to say to give, you know, another, I think another version of this notion of not passing on pain is the golden rule. What do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? Which is really to say, is to say, when you get negativity coming towards you, can you respond with kindness? You know, can you, again, it's to say, can we not pass on the pain? Can we not be reactive? Another teaching that I found in looking at at the, the Gospel of Matthew is that Jesus went out of his way to be with uh, people who were actually not, maybe not so much difficult emotionally, but difficult, um, the difficult people who are the poor, the, the sick, the afflicted. The, he talked about those who were possessed by demons, lepers and so forth, and that he went out of his way to be with those kind of difficult people, which I think is also an element of this teaching. You know, and and in, in some of the writings of the Dalai Lama, he talks about that, the importance of that, and it's, it's certainly... Um, when you look to um, Thich Nhat Hanh or Shanti Deva, there's also this emphasis on being with people who are difficult because they, they're suffering, because there's pain. And that can be difficult for us in a, in, a, in a different way, maybe, than those who have emotional hooks with us. So what happens, I think, in a very fascinating way when we can be with difficult people, is we actually find, when we look deeply at our reactivity, that they actually are not so difficult for us. When we've looked into our reactivity, some, suddenly we can find that the difficulties may, may leave. And I wanted just to end by reading um, a passage that I, I mentioned last time from the, from the uh, poems of the great Tibetan yogi and meditator Milarepa. And this was about his encounter with certain demons. And we could think of these as difficult people. So just listen to this story and maybe go back to your own sense of difficult people. Milarepa's mind became blissful. This is him. He's just meditating out in the mountains in wonderful bliss and happiness. But suddenly, what happens? There'll be some difficult people coming. So this could be a little bit like what might happen half an hour after you leave here. <laughs> so think, think of this story in that way. Milarepa's mind became blissful, and he carried some wood back up to the cave. When he arrived there, he found that in the cave were seven metal demons with bodies the size of thumbs and eyes the size of cups. Some were making fire, some were bringing water, some were grinding sampa, which is kind of flour, and some sat performing various magical tricks. As soon as Milarepa saw them, he became frightened. Years of meditative experience. Milarepa encounters a difficult people, he loses it. <laughs> That's good to remember. <laughs> okay. As soon as Milarepa saw them, he became frightened. 
I'm glad they didn't censor that out of the text as well, <laughs> because it's really it's good to have you know great spiritual teachers getting freaked out. <laughs> he meditated on his deity, uttered a subjugating mantra. That's what, like Catherine was saying, performed the gaze and aroused the deity's presence. He then meditated on compassion and friendliness, but it still didn't work. (laughs) He thought, these might be the local deities of the place. Although I've been here for months and years, I have not praised them or given them any terma, any any food, basically, any nourishment. And so he sang a song of praise to the place. And it goes on, he he gives this long song of, of praise. And the end of it, he says, You demons assembled here are obstacles. Drink this amrita of friendliness and compassion and be gone. So there may have been a little bit of ulterior motive with the, with the song. He says, you know, he, but he's basically, he's basically saying, you know, here's a poem for you, here's a song for you, and I, I do this out of friendship, but I kind of want you to leave. So, anyway, so we'll see what happens. Thus he sang, Three demons who were performing magic did go away. But Milarepa was still unable to make the other four go away. Realizing that the four demons were obstacles, he sang another song of confidence in the, in the Dharma. And he goes on to sing another long song of confidence in the Dharma. It ends in this way. As a novice meditator, I studied with my guru. As a mature meditator, I roamed the mountain solitudes. You, you Mara and obstacles do not intimidate me. It is wonderful that you demons come today. You must come again tomorrow. From time to time, we should converse. So there's been a shift, right? He's saying, it's okay if you come tomorrow. It's okay if you're there. We should hang out together, you difficult people, right? Okay. Thus he sang, three of the demons vanished like a rainbow. The remaining demon performed an imposing dance, and Milarepa thought, this one is vicious and very powerful. (laughs) So... So he sang another song. (laughs) And again, he had a long song. And it ends in this way. A demon like you does not intimidate me. If a demon like you could intimidate me, the arising of the mind of compassion would be of little meaning. Demon, if you were to stay here longer, that would be just fine with me. If you have friends, bring them along. (laughs) We will talk out our differences. (laughs) I feel compassion for this spirit. With friendliness and compassion and without concern for his body, Milarepa placed himself in the mouth of the demon. Again, think of this as your difficult person. Milarepa placed himself in the mouth of the demon, but the demon could not eat him and so vanished like a rainbow. So, thank you very much. <laughs> Let's see. Well, he shifts. He sh- it's a great story, isn't it? And, yeah. and, and it, I interpret it as, as him shifting that at first there was fear, and he, he lost it, right? He summoned, his dharmic, he summoned his dharmic resources, you know? It'd be, it'd be like you have a difficult person, and you certainly say, okay, okay. What, what did it say in that book, you know? Yeah, what did it say? Oh, oh, how did I do it when I did it good like six years ago? <laughs> and we sort, of, we sort of summon our resources. And, and that's valuable. And then I'm not... I'm, being a little humorous, but it's actually these are these are important steps. I, if we want, we could take that passage and actually say that there was a graduated set, set of steps that Milarepa took, and it's not so much that he. I would interpret it more as he was maturing 
in his work with difficult people rather than he was trying a series of techniques. He was maturing at, because he comes in the end, what, to, well, maybe I'll, go, I'll go step by step. He, he, he summons his resources and he finds that they work some, but not totally. In other words, some of the demons do leave. There, there's sufficient strength to work with some of the difficult people in a successful way that's, that he learns from, is consonant with his learning. But not for the most difficult ones. And he finds that he actually has to uh, give up his resistance and ultimately his desire for them to be other than they are. That's part of it, isn't it? It's that we, that we invite the difficult people. Oh, if you were to come tomorrow, we could converse. You know, keep on coming. I, and so I think he moves, if I, if I would give a very uh, quick interpretation of that, he comes to say, I'm okay with a difficult person being a difficult person, with a demon being a demon, and it's okay if you would even come. We can talk together. We could be there together. We could talk out our differences. We could see what's there. And in the end, I think he, what, what's powerful for me is that is like a, a giving up of resistance and reactivity and it actually, in the end, the demon goes away. Now this is, um, take that last step of placing your head in the mouth of the demon. Um, use that wisely. <laughs> use the bin, and it's, you can interpret that in many ways. It doesn't, again, it doesn't mean just to give yourself up to the power of the difficult person and let them stomp on you. And it's, but it, it means, it might mean to put yourself in the mouth of the demon might be not so much what you do outwardly, but what you do inwardly. It might be just to really open up to the pain that's aroused with the difficult person. That would be equivalent, I think, of placing yourself in the mouth of the demon. You know, and I think, uh, I think many of us probably have had experiences where we were very fearful of something. Something was very difficult for us, and we actually went into a given situation, and the fear leaves. Have people had experiences like that? Sometimes we know that the resistance is like 90% of the pain, or 90% of the difficulty. It's a very amazing aspect of Dharma practice because we have a lot of opportunities. Does that help some April? Yeah, it's, uh, I love that story. <laughs> yeah. Please. That's right. Did everyone hear? Yeah, it's... it's, it's um, it's incredible that, that I, I like to quote doctors who say that 80% of what we experience as pain is the reaction, not the original stimulus. Please. It could, it could be. It's, it, it, I think it's the choice of what's skillful or not skillful probably would depend on the situation. And, and in many situations, that could be very skillful. In some, it might not be, right? Um, but I think it's, I, I would interpret this, and, and I think what you're saying is more that the, the inner reactivity has been worked with enough so that you can do your best response to the situation. And that's, and that's what's most significant. What we actually do is going to depend on our skill in being with difficult people. And sometimes it might be just to leave the situation. Sometimes it might be to have a conversation. Sometimes it might be to throw the money changers out of the temple, right? Those are all very different kinds of action. Uh, but I think that the, the key would be, and again, it's interesting, in the Mahayana Bodhisattva practices, there are, the key is to the Bodhisattva cleanse himself or herself of the reactivity before acting in certain ways. 
and it's pretty it's pretty explicit. Yeah. Please. It, it's I, I was. <laughs> uh, Would you answer that? <laughs> um, I'll let you answer that question. Uh, but but I actually I want I want to say that it's. Um, I, you, you added an important piece to, to our consideration, because we've mostly been focusing on our own response and, and moving from reactivity, we might say, to response. But in, in many ways, um, uh, working with metta and compassion is also crucial, because we could see in some ways, and again, we're mostly focusing on the self here, but we can also think of the difficult, the relationship with a difficult person as forming a kind of system. It's a system with at least two beings who are locked into each other, in a, we might say, in a destructive pattern. And so when we, act, when, we actually, when we actually move out of our part and we do some individual work, and we can also, of course, in a lot of ways, work together if the other person is receptive. But when, let's say when we do our part to work with our own reactivity, in a way we give a gift to the other person. And we help, we help disentangle the system of reactivity. And I like to think of the work of uh, Gandhi and Martin Luther King and Thich Nhat Hanh as doing that on a large scale. That they are finding ways, uh, like you say, in the society, there's a lot of knots like that. There are a lot of ways in which there are polarized conflicts Obviously, we know how that's the case all in, in the world in many different places, but it's also the case at places of work, in our families, and so forth. And so when we can do this work, uh, either individually or sometimes maybe as, even as a, as a mediator or as a peacemaker, we can see the skill that's needed is to know the dynamics of reactivity and know how to, um, as it were... Um, Take apart the system of reactivity that has two people caught together, right? We can do that some individually. If I'm, if I'm in a fight with another person and I practice uh, unilateral disarmament while taking care of myself, uh, then the fight's not going to continue, you know? And of course, ideally, it's nice if, the other, if we can do it together. But sometimes we have to do it you know, more unilaterally. So I think you were right. <laughs> Please, yeah. For me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? No, that's great. No, it's, I, th- I think that's... It's always something new. That's very helpful to think about this, that there, like, like in the story, there are these different, what, different um, levels or different degrees of subtlety yeah. of how we get caught, right? And, and I think the same thing is found... <clears throat> I know I found it when I first started to meditate, you know, a lot of things that were problems for me that maybe were more, a little more superficial, they went away pretty quickly. And I said, oh, this meditation is so, so, so cool. You know? <laughs> and, and then I found, whoops, uh, some, <laughs> some of the other stuff takes a little, little more time. And some of them, like you say, are uh, maybe even lifelong. And I think that's, that's a great way to see it. That it, it gives, and the humor also that you mentioned is, is a tool that we didn't mention. Um, to, to have some humor about our predicaments, or I mean, I think I mean, like, you know, you know, when I was doing the uh, clown training, most of our skits were about difficult people mm-hmm. that we did. You know, mm-hmm. so it's like difficult people give a boon to the world of humor. 
<laughs> and humor helps with spaciousness, right? Among other things, it's it's also good if you're as we as we're told when you're when you're a little sick or need need healing. But humor helps with spaciousness, with not being quite so attached to our our view of things. Yeah. Yeah. Please. <laughs> um, well, first, first of all, it's um, that sounds like your at-home practice for this week, <laughs> or part of it. Uh, long time. Um, well, I think I think probably we could probably talk for the next hour about that kind of situation together. But just uh, time time is a little short. We're near the end, so let me be be brief. Um, I think that kind of Concern. First of all, I think it's at the heart of uh, most relationships. That's one point, and so it's it's good. It's not a problem that is happening. I think it's good. Another, just something that occurs to me is in, in terms of feeling the idea of feeling heard or feeling listened to. Um, often, it's um, for for many people, it's more something that has to do with the. Um, Relational qualities and the even the emotional qualities, as opposed to the content. So many people can, you know, I, I, many people can know that you've, someone's heard the content, but they didn't get the um, something else that may be more emotional. And people will still not feel heard, right? Even though you've given back the content. I know this from personal experience. <laughs> As do many of you. I'm sure this is uh, familiar territory for many of many of us. And so I think that that's something to look at. Sometimes is there is there emotional resonance, or have you have you connect? You know, the person may be presenting something and and want to be heard to know that this was difficult, or know that this was painful, or just to just to know that you have some sense of the inner experience as opposed to the mental content. So that may be something to look at. You know, to see whether there is both. Uh, both there, because usually when people talk about being heard, I'm not saying it's the way in your case, but it usually has to do more with the emotional resonance than the than the cognitive content. Um, but I'm sure it is for many people. It still is the cognitive content sometimes. So that's um, and sometimes like maybe the last thing I'll say is that sometimes um, sometimes you'll have to make a judgment whether you were really actually. Uh, actually listening to the person. You know, and so it's something to look at oneself. Am I truly listening or do I have my response there from the start just waiting for the right time to utter it? You know, and, and they have to, so there's a certain amount of, of inner looking that has to occur as to the exact dynamics of what's actually happening. I have to be very honest and look deeply. And the last thing is that sometimes people may feel that they're not heard and, there may, and, you, and you may have done the best you can, and it may be more on their part that nothing's going to give them that sense. Again, I'm not saying that's the way it is for you, but it could be the case. Sometimes people will, sometimes uh, that sense of, of wanting to get something from another person is never going to be met. It's a, great, it's a great area to really explore and just see what's there, and there are actually a lot of helpful books on this subject about communication. So let's just uh, sit quietly to, to close. And let be present what was, seemed most helpful, 
or important for one's own practice from anything that occurred this morning, the trip here or the sitting or the practice discussion or the talk or the later discussion. It's often useful just to let the one or two most important insights be present. It's also a time we can also set intentions for the coming week, for today, for the coming week as well, related to this practice especially of being and working with uh, difficult people. So at this time, as the light is becoming greater in our world, although there's still quite a bit of darkness, we remember that we do this practice not just for ourselves, but for all others. And we dedicate the learning, the insights, the value, the fruit of our time together for the healing and the benefit of all beings. Thank you very much.